Hello. Good morning. How are you? Uh, oh. Way up there in Seattle. I'm I'm well. It's very early. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, but I'm but I'm good. Good. How are you in sunny Texas? It. You know, it's like getting up. We got. I got a thing on my phone this morning that uh, that told me that it was going to be uh, up to 105 today. It might. It might. So that I should reschedule strenuous activities and not do them during that part of the day. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm doing what I got to do to make it. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. So you said you were in tr- unprecedented traffic trying to to get here for the show. Do you want to hear about it? I would. Yes, I would love to hear about it. And you're familiar with this show. This is what we. T- <laughs> this is the kind of thing we talk about. Well, so uh, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of secret routes in any town. Yes. Right. And I like <laughs> to. I pride myself on knowing the secret routes. And uh, I'm I'm not usually up at eight thirty in the morning driving around. I try not to be when I when I uh, when I hired a campaign manager. The first thing I said to him was, "Do not do morning things with me." And he was very surprised because I think the morning is when you—that's when you really run for office. The afternoon, you just sit around and smoke cigars and talk about your triumphs. <laughs> so that, <laughs> this is the thing that I was wondering because I mean I'm not super familiar with your with your work and what you do, mm-hmm. but yeah. mm-hmm. you know I I am. You strike me, we've met, we've hung out, we've done a, a few shows here and there together. You don't strike me as a morning person, just in no. general. No, no. It seemed like that's the time you sort of would convalesce and mm-hmm. allow yourself to enter the world at a leisurely, relaxed pace, but you seem like you'd be out very late at night. Very late at night. That's exactly right. And last night, I made some very poor decisions uh, <laughs> about, um, about my midnight coffee intake. So I had some coffee at midnight. I was sitting around, I was sitting, I was sitting around the the uh, the, uh, the cafe, the little restaurant where all the model planes are hanging from the ceiling. And uh, and I had some, I, I, you know, I said to the waitress, "Do you have decaf brewed?" And she said, "No." She was new; she wasn't sure where the decaf was kept. You know, it was one of those conversations. Yes. And I was like, "All right, I'll just have a cup of coffee." And then I had like four. Because it was good, right? I mean, you want to you want to do what you want to do. Because it was good, and so <laughs> six a.m. I was still awake. I was sitting. I was, you know, I was rearranging uh, all the, all my old uh, Levi's in the in the Levi's drawer, <laughs> right? And so, uh, so I, I haven't had any sleep, and then I get on the road this morning, thinking. So you, you know, haven't gotta, slept? No, wait, just to be clear, you haven't slept. No, I haven't. Had okay, any okay. Sleep. Got on the highway, or not the highway? Got on the secret road, the back road. Yeah. Uh, but there are so many new people in Seattle. The city is exploding so fast that even accounting for the fact that 95% of the uh, the dinglings on the road here would never think to go off the arterial. <laughs> even accounting for that, there were still so many people on my secret road that it was that it was a traffic jam. It was a traffic jam to the point that I was like, surely there must have been a motorcycle crash. Right. There's no other reason that we would be backed up huh. <laughs> like two miles from the nearest from the nearest intersection even. And yet there it was. No reason except a glut of humans. So and I was trying to call you, but you know, 
when I call you, I mean, you have basically the egg avatar of phone <laughs> messages. <laughs> what am I? Reached. Am I outgoing? <laughs> I haven't heard that in a long time. It's terrible. What does it sound like? Nothing. It sounds like you. It sounds like anonymousness. I'll change it. I'll change it right after the show. Yeah, what should, should it say? say what should I make it say? Hello, this is America's Dan Benjamin. I am <laughs> famous for something. God knows what. Right. You've reached me. Hello. Instead, it's just I just get this like, oh, maybe the apocalypse has happened. Maybe <laughs> Texas is buried under a hundred feet of molten lahar. Is it that bad? I'll have to. I'll have to reevaluate it based on your feedback because I, you know, I'm sitting here. I'm I'm in the. I'm like, okay. I have to be on time. I ha- today. I have to make sure I'm on time. So I'm trying to get all you know kids out the door and everything else and. Uh, and, uh, and getting in in plenty of time and okay, this is going to be done. And do I have a minute to do this? And then, so I go into the studio and I'm here and it's like, it's like 1059. I'm like, all right, good. In position, I say hi to you on Skype. It doesn't, it shows a little hollow, the little hollow chat bubble, which means you are not online yet. And I said, that's fine. And you know what? He can be late. I don't care as long as I'm not late. I've got plenty. This is all I'm, my schedule's open. This is it. But I have to prepare a little more. Like, and I've been I've been listening to the other show that you have a little bit to kind of make sure I was brought up to speed on everything. Really? And yes, and I have topics prepared. I've never been this prepared for a back to work. I think since episode seven. <laughs> uh, you don't need to be. No, right? <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> and I feel like this preparation is is a is a backup. It's not a mandatory thing. It's just if if things go way south, I'm I'm ready. I mean, I feel I feel honored by your by your uh, by your research. Yes, I am. I'm you know I am I'm showered in the honor <laughs> that you are, mm-hmm. you've shown me, and now I want to I want us to work through that research. Let's do it. But before we do that, I want to go back to this thing up late in the coffee and and all of that. Yeah. yeah. Are you a person who is affected by coffee? Because I have a friend uh, from years ago, Dave, and Dave. He could drink coffee any time of day. He could also sleep any time of day, regardless of neither had an effect on the other. Have you spoken to Dave recently? No, not recently. See, this is what happens. <laughs> Why? What are you, what are you I saying? I bet you right now Dave is sitting somewhere and he didn't get any sleep last night because he thought he was a badass and he had four cups of coffee at midnight. <laughs> Maybe. I used to be able to drink coffee at any hour of the day. I used to be able to sleep standing up in a corner. Yeah. This is you what could, I am always imagined about you, but you're yeah. saying not anymore. Well, I mean, my metabolism is changing because I am decaying <laughs> from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And all of my superpowers, <laughs> all of my great skills are starting to, you know, they're, they're starting to fray. Yeah. And, and one of those things is my ability to just eat whatever, whenever. Right. Um, you know, the other day I had a couple of, chili dogs and then i went immediately to sleep <laughs> and then i woke up feeling bad yeah and uh i talked to some people about it and somehow the chili dogs came up <laughs> somehow and people were like do, do you see a connection yeah the, you know like two enormous homemade chili dogs and then you went immediately to sleep and I, you didn't like walk around the house even and i was like nope just went straight from the kitchen table to the bed <sighs> And uh, I used to be able to do that without suffering any consequences that I could discern mm-hmm. or, you know, or maybe like 
they were just they were so far down the the stack of consequences. <laughs> right. I was still wrestling with the consequences from earlier bad decisions. Wasn't even aware of yeah. the, you know. Uh but now I mean I, I'm not affected by it so much that I won't still go for it. Mm-hmm. But at six o'clock this morning, I was searching my database for reasons why I might still be awake and landed on the fact that I had had three or four cups of coffee yeah. at midnight. So, I, I, you know, it's not definitive no, that that's the reason. It could be something else. could have been something completely else. I could have been, you know, could have been anxious, which I also have. For this show. Anxious about this show is a big show, you know. Black back to work's a big show. It it's is. A big, it's a big American institution. Yes. And I I want to do a good job. I don't, you know, I'm filling some I'm filling some mighty big shoes. Uh the um he it's he doesn't really have big shoes, let's be honest. But it, and he's not, you know, he's not the biggest guy. But he's a big man. Yes. As big, big as they, as big as they come. He's as big as they come. And then you know what they say, the bigger they come, the the larger they fall. <laughs> Yes, I think that is that's something we should warn him about, I think. Uh so here's some some things that since the last time that we spoke on the show anyway. Um you had you were filling in for Merlin last time. Yeah. And I was uh I was you know looking back at the uh you know at at notes from the show to kind of remind myself of what we talked about. Yeah, and when that actually took place, and it, it occurred to me that a whole lot of things have happened since then. That was back in January, January twenty first of this year of two thousand and fifteen. Yeah, I would have said it was longer ago. I thought so too. Are but you sure had, that you did you take proper notes? Yes, uh, with Merlin on sabbatical, Dan is joined by John Roderick to discuss his recent visit to Africa, the military, corporate huh? friends. Strategic nice. thinking, the internet, digital books and albums, echoes, Playmobil figures, measuring your arms, the tribal world, selling coats on the internet, and more. Ugh, it's, I, I just relived the entire episode in like 30 seconds. That's flash. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's right. That was in January. Big changes, though. And I'm not sure that I fully or at least can, could, could accurately tra- track what has happened for you since then because you're now running for position eight on the Seattle city council. Yes, that's right. A, a, an at large, a citywide position. Okay. I, first of all, I don't know what that means. I don't know if position eight, if that's just a nickname for it, or if, if they're numbered and there's lots of them. Wouldn't that be a good, wouldn't that be a good nickname for something? Yeah. It's that, called position eight. Where, where none of the other ones were, were numbered. <laughs> yeah. It's like seal team six. And yeah. then the other, the other seal teams are like seal team Bravo. Seal right. Team. Electra. Well, I, it, when I first when I first heard about it, first of all, I have to. I, it reminded me of Big Hero Six. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a one through five because you just this is the if, are there six people? I guess it's because there's six of them. I don't know. Anyway, I have to be totally honest with you, and I'm worried that you're going to be offended when I say this to you. Mm-hmm. And but I have I have to get this off my chest because I feel like we can't move forward unless I say this. Good. I saw the VoteRoderick.com thing. I heard about this whole thing happening. I, I love that you're doing this, and it makes so much sense to me that you're doing this. 
But when I first heard about it, I thought it was some kind of ruse. Not because I didn't think you'd be capable of it, not because it, but because it took me a little while to figure he's doing, this is a real thing that he's serious about. And I started to follow it and I started to get very interested in it. And I watched that you were doing, you're, you're on, uh, uh, like TV talking about it. You're being interviewed. You've got a website. This is real. And I started to get really excited about it. And like, I, I feel like I wish there was more that I could do here in Austin to help you with this because like I, and I have to be even more honest. Like I didn't even give a crap about like local politics. I care more about Seattle local politics and now than I do Austin ones because of your involvement in it. Isn't that exciting? It's I hope so weird. People, I hope people around America feel that way. Like I know more about like the little neighborhoods in in Seattle and the problems that there there are there and how you, your ideas, but more than I know about the crap going on in Austin. Well, it's you know a lot of it I'm sure is applicable to Austin too. Although it's yeah, never a hundred, never hundred and five degrees here. <laughs> well, never. you're lucky. But do you uh, understand that I thought like this came out because I, you're a, a as the press tells me you're a a rocker. Yeah, that's true. And it's it usually the people that are running for city council, at least outside of Seattle, are not usually don't come from like a rocker a rocker background. No, in fact, you you will find that they that very few of them rock at all. <laughs> so that that was the reason why, and I thought maybe this is like a new tour that you're going to be doing, and you're calling it, you know, Vote Roderick or something. And because like that's cool, right? Like that would be something you would you would do. Yeah, kind of kitschy. Yeah, like it, it lends itself to a good, good album kind of- title or band, even. Yeah, right. The the iconography is sort of built in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, your, your, uh, your confusion and your, your initial, uh, your initial doubt are, were not unfounded. And it's actually something that I've had to work very hard within Seattle to convince sort of the general, um, the gatekeeper class that, that, uh, I don't think that they have the imagination typically to think that I was doing this as an as a legitimate like James Franco style art prank, right? Uh, because that stuff, that level of art prank, isn't even on their radar, right? But definitely, uh, the the suspicion that I was um, that I had thrown my hat because I think what happens is people throw their hat into the ring. Uh, of uh, of a local election mm-hmm. and they putter along for a couple of weeks um, you know just you know, making some policy and waking up in the morning and making a fresh pot of coffee and like I'm running for office and yeah. then they get to that they get to the third or fourth event where they are dealing with very serious people who take it very seriously and they realize they're completely outclassed and they and that's why so many people drop out of right. races um, so there was a lot of like, well, that's fine. You know, the, the tourist is here and he's going to bumble along until he realizes that this isn't, uh, that this isn't a game. And then he's going to go back to his rock world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I, <laughs> as I stuck it out and, and, and started to be able to speak in policy terms and started to point my Clinton thumb at people and, and shake it and say, you, sir, have not done enough to protect our most vulnerable citizens and so forth and so on. And it was evident that I was capable of, of running 
a credible campaign, uh, then that there, then I had to kind of continue to convince people uh, that not only was I running a credible campaign, but I mean, then the new the new convincing I had to do was that being an artist was actually a welcome perspective not mm. not not that it was an authentic one but that it was that it belonged in the conversation at all and that that struggle continues to this day we're we're just a couple of weeks from the primary yeah. election and uh and i continue to have to remind people that art is not a luxury art is not something that you that only rich people can afford it's not something that you tack on to something at the end of the day uh, but you know that it's a uh, core value, and so that that is language that no one else in in the race is familiar with, even. So that uh, that it, it it continues to be an uphill battle, and and I wouldn't say I've mastered the language of policy or the world of policy thinking, but I certainly can do it. It's not the hardest thing. Well, I, I think it really occurred to me, like. When I watched, I watched a video, I feel like the video was on YouTube, and you were seated at a desk that looked like a classroom desk. I don't know if that's what it was. And you were sort of answering questions, and you were doing this sort of, like you're referring to now, this sort of speak that is different from the way you sound on stage. It's different from the way that you sound on on, on uh, Roderick on the line. However, it's still totally within you and your personality, and it's so clear that you're being genuine, that you do care. This is not an act. This is something that you're really, like, super interested in and care a lot about. And it, it, how weird is it for me to say that this seems like a very natural thing for you to be doing? Well, you I think that that's, I think it's wonderful. I think it should be a much more natural thing that a lot of us do. Uh, and that's a big part of what propelled me to run is this conviction I've had my whole life that democracy is best served by people joining it. Um, and to do that, like the barrier of entry should not be high. Uh, we try, we try to, there are two competing thoughts in American life. One of them is that voting should be really easy for people to do. And then the other side of the coin feels like voting. You should have to prove that you're ready to vote or prove that you're able to vote, right. show your ID and show that you're not a Brown person and show that you are, <laughs> you know, like that you come from a good family and that you own property and then you can vote. And the, you know, the other school of thought is like, no, the more people vote, the better it is. Um, and the same is true of running for office, but, running for office is challenging enough that it's much, much easier for there to become an entrenched class of people that, that run campaigns, that do campaigns, work on them, that, you know, your typical politician person and his staff. And it, it there's no reason, there's no, there's nothing in American democracy that suggests that, that we should have professional political people or that it should be difficult for normal people to run. It's just happened that way. And 
it's happened that way because the people that do run want to collect that expertise and hoard it and 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 make it difficult for new people. Could you like paint a picture for me of what uh, an a, a, a more typical or run, running mate not running mate uh, competitor would be for you? Well, so in Seattle, which is a which is a majority Democratic city, it is a city where the city council race isn't a partisan race. There are no Republicans running. Um, everyone is a Democrat, with the exception of one or two people who who are members of the American Socialist Party. But right. but in general, you don't declare your party affiliation because you are because it's it would be pointless for nine nine people to all stand up and say we're Democrats. Right. But within Seattle politics, the Democratic Party is still very, very, very active. And the Democratic Party has you know, all the legislative districts have groups uh, of, of people that meet and nominate and, and endorse and do the, you know, the groundwork of party politics. Yeah. And so there are a lot of people who run for a public office who come up through that party apparatus. They join the young Democrats in college and then they get a degree in poli sci and then they work as an aide, a legislative aide to someone when they're in their early 20s. Right. Like this is their political path. Like they're, yeah. yeah. And then uh, at a certain point, they've worked as an aide. Maybe they maybe they ran a couple of campaigns. Maybe somebody got elected, and then they they you know they went to the state house with them and were there. Were you know they were the young person that walked around behind them with a clipboard. And then somewhere along the line, they decided to take a job with a nonprofit, and so then they were you know assistant to the director of of a nonprofit that was dealing with the environment or housing or income inequality. And they worked in the nonprofit sector for a while until they rose to the level of, of director or they sat on the board. Right. And so there is a, there is a very clear path for people through the democratic party and through activist, you know, leftist activist behavior. Right. Where you feel like you are, and I, and I meet people in various stages of, of this career path all the time, and they do feel like they are kind of the farm team. Not all of them imagine that they'll run for office, but they, right. but they do imagine that they will be the chief of staff for someone one day. They'll be the campaign manager for someone. Um, they'll get, you know, they'll be hired by the mayor to be the to to run a city office uh-huh. and and i think in other in oklahoma city where where it is a majority republican town i think the republican party has a very similar way of of funding funneling people and 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 experience into into a political machine so most of the people who are running there are more than 50 candidates for nine separate seats on the Seattle city council. So that's what I was going to ask you is you're number eight. So there's a total of nine. There's a total of nine. Why are you running for eight and not six or four? Like, is there, does that a different role somehow? 
it does. There's a logic to it. So it used to be until this election, it used to be that all nine seats on the Seattle City Council were elected citywide. And you just picked, a, you just said, I'm running for seat number two. You just picked who you wanted to run against. And, and, uh, and so when ballots came out, all ballots for Seattle City Council elections had all the candidates on them. And you would just go down and vote for who you wanted for each one of the nine seats. And then you would impanel this strange body of people that had kind of, I mean, when you're voting for nine people or you're voting for, I I think some of them were staggered. But when you're voting for at-large city council candidates, it's kind of like, yeah, I guess guess I'll vote for that person because they're a pragmatist and that person's got cool hair. And that (laughs) person I hate, but I feel like they'd be really interesting and and so the city council was a was was not a very, very effective body here. Uh, so people disagree, of course. But. Yeah. So then someone proposed that that we change the way the city council works, and that seven of those nine seats be be rooted in neighborhoods. So we would no longer vote for all the candidates. You would vote for just your neighborhood city council person. Oh, okay. So if you lived in the southeast part of town, that would be called District 2. And you would elect a council person for District 2. And then 8 and 9, the two remaining seats, would still be citywide. So you would vote for your neighborhood person, District 2, and then one person each for 8 and 9. So it's a completely new way of having a city council. We've never... I mean not new nationally there are lots of city councils like that but it's new for seattle it's actually not even new for seattle we used to do it this way back in the 50s but it's new as far as anyone knows okay and so i'm running for position eight because it is the it's one of the city-wide seats and uh and not you know and not a neighborhood seat it's a it's like a tall seat right let's say so, uh, so all of the other fifty candidates all come from either neighbor neighborhood activists communities of people who have been you know but uh, but uh, but a lot of them young Democrats you know a lot of them followed that course uh, or they come from public policy backgrounds. Right. So they were already working for the mayor's office. So they were already working in some capacity where they were interacting with local government and, and frustrated because they were on one side of it and they could, they couldn't get their policy pushed through. And so now they're going to run for office and change things from inside. All right. It's time for our first sponsor. It's Harry's. Harry's.com. When did shaving get so expensive? It's crazy. Have you been to the grocery store or the drugstore and priced cost of these razor blades? It's, it's nuts. And the razors that you get aren't even that good, let's be honest. Well, Harry's.com is going to change this and has been changing it. It was started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience. And that's exactly what they do. It's a superior shave. And they do this, they cut out the middleman. So instead of having to, uh, to go to the drugstore and pay an arm and a leg for these blades... They went, they bought a blade factory in Germany that had been making some of the world's highest quality blades for nearly a century. 
and then they sell them to you at a fraction of the price. And like I said, they do it with no middleman. You order it right from them, it comes to you. They have this really awesome starter kit. Now, the razor itself, like the handle, is really, really nice. Like it's weighted, so it feels substantial. It's not this little crappy plastic thing. It's really awesome. And the starter kit, 15 bucks. You get the razor, you get three of their awesome blades, and you get your choice of the shave cream or the foaming shave gel, whichever you prefer. I, I've actually been using the gel, and I kind of am liking that better, but you gotta, you can try them both. As an added bonus, you're going to get $5 off your first purchase uh, with the code for this show, Back to Work. The code is COMICS. COMICS. So, that's an entire month's worth of shaving and the razor for 10 bucks. You want to get fancy? Get a monogram. They do monogram stuff. It's perfect gift. Go check this out. Harry's.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S, Harry's.com. And the coupon code is COMICS to save five bucks on that starter set or whatever else you want to get there. Go check them out. Thanks very much to Harry's for supporting Back to Work. Okay, so now I, I would like to bring this down to a very tangible level. <laughs> do <clears throat> like just just let's say you win this. I'm hopeful you're going to win this. I feel like you got this. Thank you, Dan. Now, once you get this, let's you know going going along those lines. Do you have like is this is this like a a title or are you in are you now? Like you've got a desk in a in like a a government building now, and you're yes. going in there, and you're there like working. You're there eight hours a day. I mean, how does or more? How does yeah. this work? Or is it like you kind of go and like? By the way, I got you know position eight, and like I'll go to a meeting once in a while. Like, how does this? Is it a volunteer? How does it? How how are you doing this? No, it is a real job. You hire three staff people. Wow, and and maintain an office in city hall. Oh, and like the full on. This is like you're there. You go to City Hall. You've got a clearance of some kind. Yeah, that's right. You get right. like and a secret clearance? You get some kind of secret clearance. Wow. I mean, I, you, um, this is what you've always wanted. There are people. Well, I mean, the, the secret clearance that I always wanted was, it was a little bit higher up, a little bit leveled up from Seattle City Council. But you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. That's right. Uh, it is, uh, yeah, it is an official position. And in fact, someone, I went to a union meeting. I go to a lot of these now, meetings where you sit down with a with the executive board of a labor union and talk to them about about their Don't you views. need to know about labor unions to do that, though? Oh, you do. And do Ooh. you already? How did you acquire that knowledge? I mean, one of the things that I have done in running is walk into a lot of these meetings and say, listen, I'm running for my first public office. I only started campaigning two and a half months ago. So I do not know the peculiarities of your process. I do not speak the dialect of English that you all seem to share. Yeah. So <laughs> part of this meeting, you know, I'm coming in here to, to ask for your endorsement. Right. But I'm, I'm also acknowledging that... I'm an, I am alien to you. So what I'm saying is, tell me what, tell me what you, ha, tell me how you speak. Tell me your concerns and your worldview. And if you do not endorse me, I will not be surprised and I will not be mad. Um, all I'm saying by coming here is that if I get elected, I 
want to be able to work with everyone. What is sales pitch though? Seriously, I know you're not going into it as a sales pitch, but like, isn't that exactly what people who are probably at least in some way frustrated with like the stuff that's going on on a regular basis, hoping to hear and, you know, like back to work is a show about, about helping people. And I'm starting to think as I listen to you, wouldn't that also be like an awesome way if, if like for your boss to say at a job or for like the new manager who rolls in or if that's you to like take that same kind of approach, like, isn't that exactly what they would want to be hearing and not, I come in here because on, and I'm jumping ahead, but on my topic list, one of my, one of my topics is, is that, you know, we speaking confidently, right. And flexibility of thinking and things like that. Doesn't that exemplify that kind of thing that, that wait a minute, this guy's going to listen to us. Well, I think that there is, that there's a huge gulf between what we sit around, when we sit around and talk about best practices, what we imagine are best practices. Um, we can have a lot of fun imagining a world in which, um, honesty plays a role. People, uh, people answer the question, what's your greatest vulnerability? They answer that question honestly, rather than trying to turn it into some sort of sales pitch for themselves. <laughs> right. Um, but in reality, uh, both the way we elect people to public office and in general, the way people work their way up a corporate food chain, um, it's a, there's actually a lot of timidity in, in the process. And, innovation is scary and and ultimately what it is is doubt is scary so i've had a i've had no small number of people say to me that my campaign is very exciting for them they really like me and they like my ideas but a big part of the way that the city runs is that People look at the city council, they see the nine people there, and they count the votes that they need to get their particular thing done. Right. They do, a, they do mental arithmetic, and they go, well, I know I can count on Don, because Don always votes with me. Mm-hmm. Don's in my pocket. And I know I can count on Babs, because Babs, is, you know, Babs takes her cues from Don. And I know, that, I, you know that, that Bill owes me a favor, because I helped him get his bill passed so you know bill is i pretty sure and then uh you know like elaine is never gonna go with me so she's just i just have to isolate her and 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 you know and hopefully like keep her from attending the vote Mm. you know and they're just doing this math right and so when they get somebody when they try to appraise a candidate like me who says, I'm going to really listen to people and I'm going to think very hard about these things and I'm not going to make decisions based on ideology and I don't owe anybody anything. Nobody helped me get here. Uh, Nobody paid my way, so I'm not in anybody's pocket. And I'm going to consider every idea like on the strengths of of, of, of its logic and I'm going to, I'm going to use my brain. Um, a lot of people that do business with the city just go, oh, my God. How do I know which way this guy's going to vote? I right. don't. Right. And so how do I know how to apportion my resources to get the legislation that I need passed passed? I don't know whether to pour money uh, 
into the guy that hates this guy. And then maybe he goes my way, you know, like, like it's, it, there's so much like small minded strategy mm. and so little appeal to like, is this a good plan? Is this an intelligent course of action? It's just like, this is our plan. I'm on this side and my goal is to push this through. Even if it means, I mean, I had a very, very hilarious meeting the other day with a group of people a board of directors of a, of a, of a, of a group. And the chairman said, listen, we're, we're all environmentalists here, but Arctic drilling provides a lot of jobs for people in Seattle. Yeah. And I said, well, no, it doesn't actually. It provides some small number of jobs, but Arctic drilling also represents the potential to despoil the Arctic for a thousand years. So weighing that possibility, which isn't a, which isn't like an extraordinary possibility. It's a, you know, it's within the realm of possibility to destroy, to, to pollute and effectively like murder the Arctic for a thousand years because mm. you know in the arctic right it's very cold even if the ice is melting yeah and so oil it's very cold and the sun doesn't shine uh, with the same intensity and so oil spilled in the water doesn't degrade it doesn't decay like it does in the gulf of mexico and just kind of turn into blobs and sink and kill things on the bottom no it kind of just freezes and spreads around this gyre at the top of the world where there are no, there's no land to interrupt it. So something that spilled in North Alaska would just go all the way around. You'd just see it go around forever and ever. And so the 20 or 25 or 29 jobs that, that we're talking about eliminating mm -hmm. by not supporting Arctic drilling, uh, in but in the port of Seattle, those are jobs that I am, you know, I'm willing to sacrifice. And this group of people, you know, got very up in their chairs, and they said, "Are you going to be the one to go tell those, you know, those forty families that right. they are going to lose their jobs?" And I was like, "I will, I will explain that to them." And, the, you know, and this group just crossed their arms and shook their heads and went, mm. and, and so the, the, the logic, and, and I think we see this all the time. People start off by saying, I mean, I'm an environmentalist, sure, but my work requires of me that I actually do everything I can to, um, to work against environmentalism in word and deed. And so having said, I'm an environmentalist and we're all on the same page. And let, so let's hug it out or whatever. <laughs> and then let's just start burning 50 gallon drums of oil, turning them over in the, in the wetlands and just setting them on fire because that's what it's going to take to juice the economy and, you know, and make sure that, that there's a chicken in every pot. 
and and that mentality pervades if it's not the environment that they're willing to despoil then it is some other principle where they start by saying listen i'm in favor of affordable housing or listen i want really good transportation too but the but but my group has a vested interest in in not that so so which way are you going to vote so i know how to spend my lobbying dollars right anyway the the long and the short of it is that that uh, there have but there have to be like dozens of situations just like that where you're kind of coming into it from a completely different perspective a completely different value system yeah. and and i can i can really see why on the one hand like to me as a person who's in a situation to like vote well, I'd be like, yeah, I want that guy in there. You know, yeah, yeah he, he's he's going to go and he's actually going to use his brain and he's going to think about things and the way that, they, and you know what? Like, he's going to make a decision based on this value that he and I probably share of what's what's really important here. But it's like you're describing this reaction of these people with their arms crossed and like, no, because that's not how the system works. You know, that's that's not you're you're not coming in to be a part of the system. You're going to try and do things like different and like different is good, but different within the context of the system and the status quo. That's what we allow in in here. Yeah, because the building blocks, right, are um, you stand up and you say, I am a pro labor candidate. And if you're very ideological and you say, I am pro labor, I vote with labor every time then you don't have to think independently as a politician. You know, you, uh, politicians are a unique class, right? We're yeah. not hi- you don't hire them. You, you impanel them as to say, like, speak for us. Like, be, be our representative. Like, use your morals and what you know about the world and, you know, and lead. But that's a lot of responsibility. And so... Most of the time, somebody stands up and says, I am pro-labor, and you go, okay, good. That person has decided that they are not going to make independent decisions, really. They are, going to, they are going to follow the course that labor, which is a giant building block of our culture and economy, labor is, is trending this way, and I am going to, I'm going to trend with them. And so in general, right, I support organized labor the concept of organized labor i think organized labor is healthy it's a nice counteractive to organized capitalism right but labor also does crazy things labor also makes very crazy decisions um because the, because there's always the problem of not being able to see the forest for the trees or being willing to make a sacrifice on the one hand in order to make a point on the other hand and so to say, like, I'm going to side with labor every single time in every single instance, it won't be very long before you're standing there saying, um, well, I, here, you know, I, I hereby sign this bill that allows us to clear-cut the redwood forests because, that, because there are 20 lumberjacks that will, that, you know, 20 union lumberjacks will, will keep their jobs. Yeah. And labor makes that kind of decision all the time. And so to say, like, 
in general, I support organized labor, but I'm not going to side with labor when they are being crazy. Well, that's terrifying for people because all of a sudden you're not, you're not moving as, as a big, all of a sudden you are an independent, right? You, you're, you are performing the job of actual moral human rather than as component. Mm. And if you say, I generally support development and, and I think that we should, you know, that, that capitalism works and we should develop our way out of these economic problems and trickle down some of that money to help the poors uh, after we build everything we can build. Even if you are that insane, <laughs> it won't be long before some developer comes to you and says, well, there's a graveyard, there's a children's graveyard in the way of where I want to build my high rise. Mm. And it's too expensive to exhume every one of those <laughs> poor oh, <God>. skeletons. <laughs> So we would like to just build the high, we would just like to build the swimming pool on top of the the graveyard, just move the stones. And then Drew Barrymore and her family will move in. Right. And there won't be any problems at all. Right. And you know, again, like the developers want to want you to be their person, you know, be in their vest pocket. So so ultimately, if you if you impaneled people in the democratic process and were, and there really was a way that you could, that you could support truly like quality people who were moral and accountable and, and like polymaths and engaged in their world and then let them sit like a jury and, haggle stuff out and find the best course. I mean, that's what we all imagine. That's what right. we imagine corporate boardrooms should be. Yeah. But in fact, in most cases, people are long, long, long ago, long before they ran for office or ever became a, a C-level employee of a company, they had made every conceivable compromise out of sort of timidity and ambition mm. to become a component rather than a, you know, a, a free radical. And I'm trying to make the case to the voters that we can do better. But to get to the voters, you have to go through the scrum mm. of the political gatekeepers. And the thing is, most people running for Seattle city council do not have access to media. Like I do. They can't just come on uh, America's favorite productivity program back to work. Right. And explain at great length their thinking. And so most people running for city council are beholden to conventional media and beholden to gatekeepers in ways that, I still am. I still have to be, but I'm not completely beholden. Well, see, that's an interesting comment, though, that you make that, you know, you do have a way to reach folks that I think other people just simply wouldn't get or wouldn't get like how to do it. Like there's a the running joke Merlin and I don't talk about a lot on the show. We've mentioned it once or twice. 
But we get tons of email from people who are usually in the PR world. I think Merlin described this well a couple episodes back, but like a PR rep. And they'll, I guess because of the description of the show being like about productivity and that kind of thing, <laughs> we get these great emails, long emails from a PR person talking about how whoever this, this it's usually a book author or speaker, uh, about a how, speaker. yes, and how they are so like, you know, they're talking about productivity and enhancing your life and improving this and improving that. And, and they've spoken here and this is their new book. And, and for a while we were just ignoring them, but then Merlin started to engage with them a little bit and he'll, he'll reply and say, you know, like, well, cool. What, what, which episode is, you know, the, the latest person was this person named Leo. Uh And, uh, well, what's, what's Leo's favorite episode of our show? Uh-huh. And he'll just kind of reply, oh, that's great. Thanks for writing. Well, what, you know, what, which episode inspired Leo to reach out to us? And we'll usually never hear back from them. But, yeah. you know, it's, it, you think about there are these people who, like someone in their PR team said, you need to be on a podcast. And now they're, they're doing that. They're doing that thing. And I will go and do my thing on a podcast now. And it seems like almost regimented and formal and strange. And obviously, we're never going to have one of these people on the podcast. I think we should uh, because it would be so odd. But like it's there is like a formula that they're set to follow. Don't you have to do that, too, though? Like, don't you have to kind of go? And do you feel that you're doing it, that you're going through the channels? It's like the old days of like getting tech support for Windows for work groups or something where you're like, I have to call this person and describe the problem, even though I know they can't help me so that I can get to tier two. And then the same thing, tier two won't be out. I know tier three will. So I have to go through this motion. And isn't it's almost like feels to me like this feeling I used to have. And this is a part that I want to understand. You're up against this stuff the same way that I felt like I was up against, you know, like knowing that if I do this thing in high school, I'm going to get detention for it, but I have to do it anyway, you know, like, and then you have to go to detention and you're going to be in detention and you know what detention is like, like, isn't there that kind of built in aspect of frustration that I'm I'm going to go to this meeting and I've got to talk to these people about this thing and I just have to work the system to get to that point. Does it feel like that or am I missing the something bigger? Well, it it absolutely does work that way, and th- there are a couple of different, <clears throat> a couple of different angles, right? If 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 I was Jesse the Body Ventura, yes, <laughs> there's or, perfect parallel for right. Or right. if I were if I were Sonny Bono, right, and I had widespread name recognition and also considerable money and resources, um. You know, it, it has been shown that you you can be a person who basically circumvents a lot of the political gatekeepers by just making a public appeal and saying, "Hey, Americans or Washingtonians or Texans or Minnesotans, right? Like you know me, I'm the guy that jumps off the top rope and body slams, <laughs> and I'm right. gonna body slam these bills." At the state house. Right, right. You see me go, in the ring, I'm going to do the same thing up here. Yeah, and I'm sh- absolutely sure that the Democratic <laughs> Party Pauls and operatives and 
you know, legislative district uh, precinct committee chairman were all <laughs> appalled by Jesse Ventura uh, because to whatever degree he went through their process, I can't imagine it was, it was deliberative. Mm-hmm. I think he just probably swept in and said, you know, I pity the fool or whatever his <laughs> trademark uh, catchphrase was. Right. And Sonny Bono came in and said, you know, uh, <laughs> what? Uh, you know, Don and McGarrity sitting on a on a. a, a uh, I don't. I don't have any Sonny Bono. No, lyrics. I don't either. But um, but I do not have that kind of name recognition or those resources or that access completely outsider access to media. Like Ross Perot, right? Could just spend uh, ten million dollars of his own money and put him and make himself a serious candidate. Well, we're seeing Donald Trump do it. Mm. Um, well, I think where, there are people who would say he's not a serious candidate, but I know exactly what you're talking about, that he shows up and he's like, I can do all this stuff. These other people can do. Cause I've got billions and billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. And, and, and more than that, uh, he has name recognition. And, yeah. and, and, and so if CNN and the Washington post do not cover him, then it seems it's, a little suspect right mm-hmm. i mean like he's out there he's making waves and so ultimately he gets in the newspaper as though he's a serious candidate and and people can ride that all the way to getting elected so there's that that i i don't have access to that kind of uh, of uh of independent media ability to just reach voters on a one-to-one basis without having to go through the gatekeepers mm-hmm. But the other part of your question is when I sit in a room full of gatekeepers, what's, what's fascinating is that they, they do not seem to necessarily have the self-awareness to recognize that they are framing questions in you know, one of about a hundred ways you could frame that question. There is a political um, dialect there's a policy dialect. And so things get framed. And, and if you're running for office, the assumption is that, that is, that's just... That they don't see that that's a framing. They just see it as that is the... These are the important questions. And so when, I am, when I'm walking through the political process, when I show up to these events and it's like, and I sit down at the dais and they ask a question like name three things that you have done to help immigrants and women of color find affordable housing in the last two years. Right. Like, are is that a real question? That was an actual question. How did that you was, answer that? Well, so the guy next to me is like, I've been working on behalf of women and communities of color uh, in the affordable housing realm for 15 years as director of the Affordable Housing Alliance. And <laughs> here's what I did. I increased affording, I, I increased, increased affordable housing by 25% over the last two fiscal years. And I put 17% more counter space in the kitchens of new developments. You know, just ex- really at that level of answering the question. And then it goes to the next guy and he's like, I've been, I've been on the Seattle city council for 10 years and we have done the following 25 things wow. on behalf of immigrant populations. 
uh, to find affordable housing. And then he lists all his accomplishments. And then it comes to me. And if I accept the framing of that question, all I can say is I am a musician and an artist yeah. and, uh, and it would be untrue for me to have any of my activities as having directly helped immigrants and women of color find affordable housing in Seattle. And so the, my only answer, my only truthful answer to your question is null set or, or I'll, when I get elected, I hope that you believe me when I say I will try to do those things. Yeah. Um, and, but there is another way to understand that question. And there's another, there, there is a, there, there is a context for that question where you acknowledge, you acknowledge the process that went into composing it and framing it in that way. Where you say, listen, affordability and housing uh, is is a major issue in our city. It's affecting a lot of different groups of people, and it affects different groups in different ways. And immigrant communities are faced with these challenges, and you know, and uh, women of color have these additional challenges, and so addressing them requires a broad scope. We can't. We can't solve these problems simply by targeting the, the, the problem that sits in front of us by putting 17% more counter space in the kitchens. That is, you know, that is putting lipstick on a pig. Like ultimately, in order to address these questions, we have to look systemically at the way we're growing and mm-hmm. look systemically at the city. And so that, that kind of ability to pivot, but also refusal to accept the the framing as, as a, you know, as a natural system, but recognizing that, that the, the frame also matters. And in, in, in the three months that I've been running, I've only once or twice been asked a single question about culture or arts or, um, really any aspect of civic life, is outside of, of, of pretty narrow silos of what is your zoning policy? Right. What is your, you know, how will you float a bond to build what kind of mass transit system? Like these are the, these are the silos that you're expected to have very detailed answers for. And then outside of that, like, well, what do you intend to do for the arts? Uh, I guess we'll ask that question. Or I guess, you know, Maybe one in 10 forums will somebody ask a broad question, like, how will you help the arts go? And it's like, how will you help the arts go? <laughs> and the other candidates are like, I believe in the arts. Right. And you go, uh-huh. And, and, you, and everybody's eyes glaze over because no one recognizes how important they are to civic life and how much city government affects the arts community and the and ultimately the like the difference between building spaces and building places mm. you know the difference between seattle being a bunch of space or that seattle is a place mm-hmm. and the city councils you know these little decisions that they're making 
really has an effect on the on the broad spectrum of like what kind of place Seattle is. But no one is no one is capable of biting off that big mouthful uh, or addressing it really, except except by doubling down on statistics. So that you know that's the real that's the real challenge for me. It isn't just that I have to perform the kabuki of figuring out an answer for figuring out an answer about policy sitting on a dais next to people who have, who live and breathe policy. Yeah. So figuring out an answer that makes me seem not just credible, but like, like authentically different, but then also raising these other questions and saying, it's also okay that we talk about not just, are we building enough square footage, but is it quality square footage? Right. Nobody wants to, if you're just building like gulags, you may be accomplishing the data set. You may have added 10,000 new apartments. Right. But if they are unlivable places, if they are miserable places, what have you done? Like you've committed a crime on your own people. And that is a, that's a, a world that no one else is even capable of. They, they don't, they, it's not on their radar at all. You know, they, they'll yell at developers all day about their profit margins. But if you say, well, shouldn't we address the developers and say that, that apartments sh- shouldn't have seven-foot ceilings? Have you ever lived in an apartment with a seven-foot ceiling? It seems small, right? You feel like you are living in a refrigerator box. <laughs> but if you're, you know, if, if the zoning allows for it, because you're trying, because your only consideration is square footage, then... You know, and the housing advocate over here is like, oh, we, we you know, we built 10,000 new apartments. It's, it's like 10,000 new apartments where the windows don't open. Um, I don't consider that a triumph. But, you know, that's a, again, like a, it's almost otherworldly to the political class to consider things like that, you know, to consider, because as soon as you use the word aesthetic, they just hear you you know, they just see you putting streamers up, right? right? Aesthetics. What are you talking about? What color the walls are? You want them all to be <laughs> Robin's egg blue? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> We're trying to build stuff here. We're like serious people. We're doing serious things. And it's like, aesthetics are serious, my friends. Um, if you build things that are, if you build ugly things, then they decay because nobody loves them. And then you have built slums, you know, you've built proto slums. Uh, because they were because they were disgusting to begin with, and there's a reason that that we love old buildings because they're built with care and they're beautiful things and people want to live in them. And if it's a little bit more expensive to give an extra foot of ceiling height, that more than pays off over the long you know over the course of the life of the building or the life of the city. But try and say that in a minute and a half at a yeah, public right, forum, right? You know? So, I mean, but isn't this something you feel you would be up against, like daily when when you get seat eight, or you know, like like mm-hmm. it, it, because it's it just it seems like you maybe care a lot about this stuff. Aren't you worried that 
when you get this thing that it's just going to be every single day, like fighting against this? Yes, I am. But I mean, you know, a lot of us in the punditry class, you know, we arrive at a place where we have, we've spelled out our, our, our vision of the world and people rally and say, I like your vision of the world. And you go, I know, right? <laughs> buy the t-shirt. And then they buy the t-shirt. Right. And they go, I got the t-shirt. You go, great. Look at us. We're a little army. And then people say, yeah, we are. Like, what do we do now? Yeah. And you go, well, we're going to have another t-shirt in a couple of months. And at a certain point, like, if you do feel strongly and you do believe in a, in a better world, like the reason more people don't run for city council from outside of this typical silos is that nobody does it. And so we don't have role models. You know, when they, when they, when people come to me and say like, who's your role model in running for city council? It's like, well, I don't have one. Yeah. I mean, ultimately I'm doing this, uh, in uh, on principle, and uh, and maybe I'll inspire somebody else to run for city council. And if I got on city council and sat up there and said, "It's more important to me that the buildings that we build be livable than it is that we maximize square footage," and and then I'm greeted with a chorus of boos. Mm. Have you been booed? No one has booed me, <laughs> but there's, you know, a, is this but, a public? Cause like sometimes at nighttime, something will happen and the, the cable box will wind up going back to like that zero, zero, zero one channel mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and that's like the Austin city council meetings and stuff like that. Like the, the, the local access channel, it'll show these things and these people are in there. And there's usually an audience of some kind. And I, my understanding is like anyone who wants to can, can go to these things That's right. and, and they'll be, they'll be speaking about things that are very like, you know, not, not stuff that actually is kind of interesting to me. Like, why can't we put a traffic like there, like there, or why can't this gas station that would be really, really great. Like why so many people are so vehemently against this gas station when we we really could use one there, but like here's 50 people who all would like to be heard talking about why it shouldn't be there, you know? And like, those are like the interesting things. There's a lot of stuff that to be honest for me is like not that interesting, but like people are super passionate about it. And there is an audience and the audience will like cheer and boo when someone says something. And it's like, it's amazing to me. The, breadth of issues that are discussed in these things and how many of them just when I, when I, when I sit there and I, and now of course now, because like I consider you a friend, I'm like, my friend is like going to be in this now. Now I watch that channel for a little bit instead of instantly ru- trying to find wherever the remote, wherever my kids hid the remote so I can change the channel. I know. I know it's, 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 stunning. it's like a vortex. Mm-hmm. Well, and what, one of the things that I had to, that I that I uh, that I had to struggle to grasp and still struggle to grasp is that there are a lot of people 
for whom the democratic process in all its arcana is there. That is what they do instead of go to the movies. That is what they do instead of build model airplanes or right. That's like the, a hot, like their, their interest hobby. Yeah. yeah. Right. It, they don't go to the dog track. They go to the 32nd democratic legislative district, uh, community forum and listen to the candidates for city council speak and they go to city council meetings and and they're not crazy people you know they're they are enge- they they somehow either the way they were raised or the way that they see the world they regard that engagement as as important not just personally but like it's important that people do that work because that is how democracy happens. And so when you think about the Iowa caucuses mm. or, uh, but, but, but all the way down to like the race for dog catcher, 99% of us go, huh, that's interesting. I wonder where that person came from. Huh? I wonder how that process works. Oh, well, here's my ballot and I'm going to check one of these boxes and my work here is done. For a year leading up to that ballot arriving in your mailbox, there were literally thousands of people dedicated to volunteerism and public engagement at the level of just like going and sitting in a in a in an auditorium and taking notes on what the candidates said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's fascinating to me. I, I've met a lot of really smart people, and it's and it's something that I see a lot of people kind of do in retirement, you know, in their sixties and seventies, they start to go to get, get involved in the, in the party. And there are a lot of people in their early twenties that do it. Um, because they're ambitious and they want to be in, in politics. Right. But, you know, the, the legislative districts are the, the font from which all politics sort of spills. It's so it's so weird to hear you talk about this though, because like, I I don't know. I go back to what I've said in the beginning, like this fits you in such an interesting way that I never would have expected it. But it's like that. It's like that thing where you look at something and you're like, Oh, well, of course that made that makes sense. Of course, that's how it just cars, of course, should have seatbelts. Like, duh, how could we have not put them in there? Mm-hmm. Is that how you feel when you're doing this? That, like, this was like a calling for you in some way? Like, now as you're doing it, you're like, yes, this makes this makes sense for me. And of course, I should try, I should try doing this thing. Um, you know, it's like it's know, almost like somebody uh, never started painting until they were 40 years old and they're like, this is, I should have been painting all along. And then they get validation that their paintings are good and they start selling their paintings and they make a living as a painter. And they're like, for 40 years, I was trying to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. And I thought I was supposed to be a programmer or a lawyer. And it, you know what? I was a painter all along. Is it, it like it, that? It's funny because there are a lot of people watching the campaign um, in, in this city and kind of, you know, and in other cities sort of, watching me and trying to discern whether I'm because uh, trying to discern how 
serious I am, not about this campaign and this election, but how serious I am about being a politician now. Right. Because, because can you not be in politics? You, if you're, if you're going to be in politics, like you're by nature a politician. Well, yeah, and and a lot of a lot of the the people in the democratic process and in the in the gatekeeper class, um, they say things like, "Well, the best way to run a good campaign is to run a campaign and lose the first time," and so. You know, there's a good chance that you will lose this this election, and they say this very. You know, they. I'm just like sweat is dripping down my brow. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm going. I'm I'm working 18 hours a day at this. Right. And these people very blithely say things like, "Oh, well, you'll probably lose this one," but to them, that is no disqualification. They, what 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 matters to them is that you lose and then you run again. And by doing that, you, sh- you demonstrate your passion for it and you acquire the skills necessary to do it successfully. And I've had a lot of people say, if you keep doing this, you will absolutely win elected office and will one day serve. So we want to be your friend, mm. but you probably won't win this election. <laughs> and I just go, oh my God, you know, like all I can do is try and do, just try and make it through tomorrow. Right. And you're telling me that that this is just an initiation process. Um, that's too difficult to bear. Yeah, right? yeah. But like over the course of my life, I, I, there was absolutely a time um, 15 years ago where I thought, you know, the 30 years war needs more scholars. <laughs> A lot happened in the 30 years war that set the course of the modern world. And I see the world in some ways as sort of there's before the 30 years war and there's after the 30 years war. And not enough people are studying the 30 years war because it's very difficult to understand. It's very hard to study. It's not glamorous. There's no Napoleon. And so all the people that, that, you know, go study that shit kind of get confused. And the books about the 30 years war that have been written by scholars are also confusing. The books are confusing because the scholars were confused. And I said 15 years ago, like somebody needs to make a clear picture of the 30 years war. And maybe I should do that. And I, I thought about it a lot. I read a lot of books about the 30 years war and ultimately I got confused. You know, you get to that point where you're like, I think I got it. And then it's like, Oh, this is very, very, very confusing. As soon as you start bringing in other, all the other stuff. And, but it, it was entirely possible to me that, you know, uh, that in looking for like what my calling was, that I that <clears throat> it could have been that I could have settled on that uh, for a time, or or that I you know that making music absolutely was was my calling, and, right. and and still is in a way, and doing podcasts is really really fun, right? It feels very natural, um, and so there are a lot of people in the political world who are listening very closely to hear me say either that I have 
discovered my calling and this is all I want to do now. Or conversely, that um, this is really hard and weird and I'm not that into it. And depending on what happens in the upcoming election, like I'll either, um, I'll either serve in public office for a time or I will, uh, I'll lose the election and I will go immediately back to doing what I was doing before. Right. And, you know, and they're listening for that because again, the way they frame the idea, the way they frame running for public office is that it is at the level of a calling. And the only people that should hold public office are ones that want to be part of that professional class, you know, that they want to enjoin this world and become one of the exalted. And the idea that there's, that there's value in citizens holding office for a time and then resuming their normal lives. Right. Right. I mean, that's a, that was a fundamental premise of the founders of America. That was a basic premise, right? That you would come Farmers or merchants would would come do their time in Washington or in their state capitals and then go back and take take what they learned back to their to their village and you know they would bring what they knew from the village to the to Washington and then they would take what they learned in Washington back to the village and that was a healthy society and i think I think that still that possibility still exists we just have we've abdicated that responsibility to, you know, to a, to a click. Um, and, and honestly, like I may get elected to the Seattle city council and sit in that chair that first day. And somebody comes in and starts wagging their finger at me and yelling about what color the fire hydrants are uh-huh. in the port. Right. And I may be like, Oh my God, I love this so much. <laughs> Like this actually is really engaging. And because I watch that, I watch that channel zero. Right. <laughs> um, but even if I say, you know, even if I listen to the person wag their finger at me and then lean into the microphone and go, sir, your problems are not significant and you should find a better way to use your afternoon than to yell at the Seattle city council because prioritizing um, giving you two minutes to yell about the color of fire hydrants in the port um, isn't doing any of us a service. And nobody says, nobody talks that way either. Uh, And that, you know, and that is maybe uh, it's presumptuous, presumptuous of me to think that, that that has any value in the process either. You know, that kind of, that kind of perspective maybe maybe isn't included for good reasons you know maybe the democratic process maybe maybe there should be a robot city council that sits mm. in, in in a downtown square and people get to go down and yell at it <laughs> uh, and and that that would be healthy for everybody yeah uh, so i don't you know i honestly don't know and 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 um and ultimately, like not knowing is 
is healthy, I think, for Seattle. Me not knowing what it's going to be like is healthy for Seattle. And, and I mean, I can't say whether it's healthy for me. It doesn't necessarily feel healthy now. Our next sponsor is HipChat. Are you trapped in your inbox every day, spending too much time on email? Do you get dragged into meetings where nothing ever seems to get done? It's the worst. Well, there is a way to make it through your day without wasting so much time. And that solution is called HipChat. They're changing the whole game when it comes to team communication. It helps you and your team and the people that you're working with work together more effectively. The information you need faster than email, meaningless face-to-face meetings are gone. They're history, I'm telling you. You'll make decisions faster, you'll get work done faster. They've got group chat, video chat, file sharing. It's all like built right in. And this is especially useful if you're doing remote work, you want to work from home, your whole team works from home. You want to go to the coffee shop on Friday, spend the day there instead of like sitting in the office. This makes that possible. Take the office with you wherever you go. Great teams get more done with HipChat. They're going to have to run with that. I'm just an idea guy. And right now they have a special deal for listeners of this show. 90 days of HipChat Plus. That's their like premier feature with unlimited file storage, unlimited message history, guaranteed support for free for 90 days. And to get that, all you need to do is go to hipchat.com slash back to work, all spelled out, hipchat.com slash back to work, 90 days of their HipChat Plus for free. Go check it out. Thanks very much to them for supporting Back to Work. Okay, so here, here's some things I want to talk to you about. Again, like because these are things I'm very curious about. You, in, in listening to you as a, a fan of the other show, um, and in talking to you, you seem to have, and please jump in if I'm, if I'm wrong, you seem to have a fair, up until recently, a casual, casual lifestyle. Yeah. You, you kind of, you sleep until you wake up and you yeah. go to bed when you're tired. And that doesn't mean you don't do important things in between those hours, but you do them, you do the things that it seems like you find yourself led to do. And so like in, in scheduling this show and some other things, you introduced me to Tom and at first I didn't get Tom's email and I found a, there was, it was getting sucked into spam. Tom is a, a, a person who is you know working and, and helping with your campaign. And in trying to just schedule the last time that we did the show that you filled in, you tell me when to be there. I'll be there. No big deal. And now it, it's not that it's been difficult to schedule it, but there was scheduling, a lot of scheduling involved to make it happen. And it seems like, you know, you were doing something this morning that involved driving around. And it seems like this is a, represents a huge shift for you. And I'm very curious to hear how, based on what you said at the beginning of the show, though, staying up, drinking the coffee, the Levi's in the drawer, that it's, it's taking you some effort to adapt to this more regimented kind of a schedule. Is that, has that been hard? Yeah, it has. And, and, um, you know, and part of the, part of the question, I guess, is, um, you know, knowing what, like learning that people had different emotional natures was very 
useful to me uh, a decade or so ago, 10 or 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. when I realized that I did not perform the same way that other people did. I did not, I did not function in the world the same way that other people did. Not because I had an intellectual deficit or because I was um, afraid or because I was damaged, but because I had a different um, emotional nature. I was not somebody, in spite of being a performer, not somebody who craved praise or attention. I was much more self-critical and much more, um, uh, yeah, I, was, I was answering to, to a different master mm-hmm. than, um, than a lot of the people that I saw that I felt like were more successful in the world. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't interested in, in, um, in a lot of the prize that other people seemed to be chasing. And recognizing that I had a different, that I was just made up differently, and that that I that I was seeking different different rewards, right? Um, helped me a lot. But when you try to engage with the world, and the world is made, the world is sort of cast according to the dominant reward structure. Um, you have to find your own path through it, yeah. and a lot of us. A lot of us, uh, you know, withdraw. And some people withdraw all the way. Other people sort of withdraw certain aspects of themselves and put others out there. And I've, I've been working my whole life to find a comfortable balance between, between the fact that I do like to engage with people verbally around, uh, within the sphere of ideas. Yeah. And that is very social. But I don't um, I, I don't draw personal energy from talking to people. It's an expenditure of energy. And in running for office, you realize that there are people that, that it is in some ways an athletic contest. And there are people who are better suited to do the high jump or to do long distance running. And just as that's true, there are people that are better suited to run for office. People with certain emotional natures who get, you know, who are rewarded, uh, uh, who are, who are empowered and rewarded by people touching them and, Mm -hmm engaging with them and talking to them and being, you know, and spending time with people. And it's much, much more difficult to run for office if you prefer to be in in the company of a small group or no group. And that's been, that's been an enormous challenge because as you say, I used to be able to, to get, I used to be able to budget several hours of every day where I could keep my own counsel. Right. And now I have no opportunity to do that. Uh, for, you know, for the last three months, I've had eight meetings a day and every one of them involves me walking in a room of people I've never met before where I do not even know what their expectation of me is. But wow. I'm just, 
I'm here with my little sheaf of papers and the studying that I've done and my conviction about the world. And I'm here to introduce myself and in a very short amount of time, convince you that I would be a good representative. And it's, it's, it would be, it would be emotionally draining if I were an extrovert and a high jumper. Uh, but as somebody who, you know, who likes to discuss things over the course of an hour and a half yeah. rather than in two minutes. <laughs> right. And as somebody who, after talking for an hour and a half, kind of needs to then go curl up somewhere for an hour and a half. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that you? Is that you? Because I often, it's, you know, you see people who are performers, if I may call you a performer. Of course. There are people who are performers who, when they are on, whether they're on a podcast or on a stage uh, or, or in, a, in a movie or whatever, that, you know, that, that they love that and they get a thrill from that. But then when, uh, when they're alone or that they, they then require that alone time, like they require that off time or that downtime and you see them in person and you're like, what are you talking about? Like, it seems like it's so easy for them and they love it and they love people and they love it. I mean, is that you? Is it like after doing something like that, that you need to sort of recharge and recover from that? Or does it energize you or, or what? No, no, I'm a, I, I'm a, a pretty deeply introverted person. And, you know, being friends with John Hodgman is a wonderful experience because John will work all day. Mm -hmm. He'll do a comedy show at night. And then there's nothing he wants to do more than invite mm, six to 16 of his closest friends back <laughs> to the hotel to stay up until the wee hours, um, making cocktails and playing the dozens and just having fun. And, so being friends with him is wonderful because I go to a thing, I, I'll do a show and then we'll go back to the hotel and all these fun people will come and it'll be, uh, we'll be having a wonderful time and it's very fun. Um, and I get to participate in it as a kind of extended theater. But when it's my show, um, when I get done with a day of, of, hard work and then I put on a show. Yeah. I leave by the stage door without saying goodbye and I go back and I draw a bath and then I sit in the bathtub and I eat chocolate bonbons and I do the crossword puzzle. <laughs> and that is my <laughs> ideal after show uh like right ritual. Right. I would no more invite between six and 16 people back to my hotel than I would run naked down the middle of Sunset Boulevard. I totally know what you mean. And I, I mean, I think I always have this idea in my mind because I don't do like a lot of things that require me to, I mean, I'm, I'm doing shows a lot, but I don't do a lot of things that require me to like, I'm going to go up on a stage now and speak to people. And then after that, go down and talk to these people and hang out with them for a while. And this, and they, like I've done, I do that. I do that a few times a year. And that's my very limited, different understanding of that world of getting up on a stage and per doing a performance. 
a podcast is very different in that like you're in probably a comfortable uh, chair, you're, you know, you're talking into a microphone, you maybe can look out at a window. It's very different from being on in the sense of like you're in front of this crowd of people who have this expectation of you and the expectation isn't separate in the way that it is when you're just you in a room talking to a microphone with headphones on like that. There's still the expectation, but imagine I I'm trying to imagine going into that room and having like being interrogated. And that I, I refer back to that video. You were like being interrogated, but it didn't, it didn't seem to bother you at all. It didn't seem to rattle you at all. You were very comfortable. You were, I can only imagine what kind of recharge you would need after that. Uh, it's, it's, um, what, what has happened over the course of the campaign is that my emotional reservoir has been drained and there isn't ever really an opportunity to fill it back up. Mm. And so I'm always, every little bit of, of um, additional resilience I throw into this kind of empty tank and it fills up a little bit in the bottom and I use it up immediately. And that is very new for me to have no reserve. And I don't know where to find it. And I'm not very good. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not especially good at taking care of myself. So, and, 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 and that process of filling up your emotional reservoir has always been a mystery to me. I don't know how it works. I do not understand how sitting in the bathtub and doing the crossword puzzle replenishes me where sitting down in the hotel bar and arguing about Chomsky <laughs> with some people uh, de- depletes me. Right. Because I see other people and I see, I see them replenished by sitting in the bar and when they are left alone to ramble around their homes all by themselves, they they, lose it. They lose lose it. it. That's right. And so I don't, I I'm not, but that is all very mysterious to me. I don't know how that works. I don't know why it works. And now I don't have a strategy. I don't have a, uh, I don't have any kind of history or methodology of, of figuring out how to, how to fill that tank faster right? or how to, how to drive around with an empty tank all the time. Um, well, when you're, when you're in office, so it won't be like this. Well, and this is the thing. One of the things that, uh, that couldn't be more clear is that the set of skills, the talents and the techniques that you need to run for office successfully are completely different from mm. the set of talents and techniques you need to hold public office. Yeah. And you can be a great campaigner and a terrible public servant. And the problem is, I think that you could be a great public servant and a terrible campaigner, but it's very hard to win and be a terrible campaigner. Right. And so we set this situation up where the only people that we ever allow to hold public office are ones that can prove that they, you know, hold this, these skills of campaigning. And we make no allowance for the fact that probably the best public servants are ones who, who suck at campaigning. Like how would we get the best public servants into office if not by subjecting them to this grueling experience 
I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know how you would... Obviously, the public wants to vet people, but and maybe in a maybe in a future world where social media is connected to um, the democratic process mm-hmm. in a way where you can just say um, where, where on your own time you're able to say I like this person I like their I like their ideas I like their performance and I can and I'm going to endorse them here in my digital profile realm and that actually carries some currency i mean and this this may be one of the this election may be an example of that there are a lot of people voting for me who know me from uh from the internet and so they have had plenty of time to sit with me and know that even if i haven't exactly articulated my housing policy right they are confident that they know my thought process. And that's something that I think is so interesting. And I think this kind of like, you know, there's that weird thing. Like when I go to a, like a, a conference or a meetup or something and people are like, Oh, Hey Dan, how you doing? And like, I'm like, Oh, pretty good. And they're like, Oh, what happened with this thing? And your son's uh, whatever he was doing. And your daughter said this thing the other day. And I realized that they know me because they listen to a show or shows that I've been doing and they know stuff like for years, like they know it and they, they hear my voice in their headphones once or more a week. And like, they have a friendship with me that, that I don't necessarily have. It's like a one way thing because I've never actually met them before, but they know stuff about me and they feel like that they know me. And I'm sure it's, it's the same for you, but in a way, like that's, that's kind of cool because like these people who do know you or listen to you or enjoy your music or whatever it is, like you're, you are more knowable and trustworthy because of that, because they listen to the after dark, you know what I mean? Or they listen to the story of uh, all the great shows or whatever it is. Like you are a known thing to them way, way, way more then these people who have these like prepared statements and who aren't drawing on their personal opinions or beliefs as much as uh, they are on w- what policy they feel they should support for truly political reasons or for, you know what I'm saying? Or I'm not sure exactly what, how, it, how it works, but I'm sure that they're like, Oh, support me on this thing. And I'll make sure this other thing you want gets through, you know, like you don't come in with any of that. Well, no, but but this is the, I mean, do we really want to live in a world where we are electing podcasters? Um, That seems like a real change. That seems like a real switcheroo. Yeah. You're saying maybe we're not ready for that or the world is not ready for that. You know, maybe the world is. The problem with social media is that it's fickle, right? So... So we don't want to live in a democracy where it's based on Facebook likes. Right. Because <laughs> oh, you know, that's scary. You know, something comes some some new leaf blows in uh to the to the machine and all of a sudden everybody's everybody changes their mind. Um some new tiny piece of evidence comes along that appeals to our emotions and all of a sudden we want to to 
change course. I mean, that's a change, completely change course. That's what true participatory democracy looks like in a social media age um, where there, you know, like consensus is impossible to determine because you have to look at it over, over a hundred year scale because in the, in the real, you know, in the immediate term, everybody's just, just, uh, just flitting around like fruit flies. Right. So we have representative democracy in part to, to buffer uh, that tendency. Like we, 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 we hire people or we, I'm sorry, we, we uh, elect people to, to speak on our behalf so that we don't have to, you know, so that there's some, so that there's some object permanence at least in politics. Um, but we've always aspired to be governed by philosophers and, you know, and I think throughout history, like, that 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 there are good good and bad examples, right? Vaclav mm-hmm. Havel was, I think, a pretty great president of the Czech Republic. Um, but you know, it's also it's also easy to elect dreamers who just sort of dream the budget away. So honestly, I I um I can't say I can't say for sure whether I would want to, whether I would want our, the entire city council to be made up of podcasters. Let's just right, say it that Right, way. right. But there should be some. But there should be a podcaster. Yeah. I think it should be me. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. And currently I'm the only one that's running. So <laughs> that's an easy choice for Seattleites. If, if you want, if you want to elect a podcaster and if you want to elect a person that understands the internet, um, you know, elect uh, elect your friend from the internet, John Roderick. If you want to, if you want somebody to sit on a citywide seat, <laughs> who really, really cares about what color the fire hydrants in the port of Seattle are, then elect the fire hydrant guy. Um, he's not actually running; he's someone I made up. But uh, his equivalent is is running. In in almost every race, there's at least one person who is like fully, fully, fully siloed in um, in like one pretty micro area. Yeah. Our last sponsor today, it's Linda, L-Y-N-D-A, the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses that will help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. They are giving you a free 10-day trial. This is a really great way to explore what Linda has to offer. It really doesn't matter what you want to learn. You want to learn uh, getting things done, the thing that Merlin is always uh, talking about, David Allen. David Allen does the course for getting things done on Linda. Like Linda pulls out all the stops. They get the industry experts. They get the people who are the best at teaching stuff and doing stuff. And they say, hey, come make a course. And they've got lots of courses there. Little things you can jump in and you know what? I just want to learn how to do this one thing in Final Cut Pro. And I don't want to watch an eight-year-old on YouTube show me how to do it because they don't know. I want to see an expert show me how to do it so I can get in there, watch the thing, and five minutes later, go and do it. 
But if you want longer courses, you want to learn fundamentals of something, you want to create a path for yourself to go from beginner to intermediate to expert, they've got those great full courses too. You can get access to everything with your membership. That's the beauty of it. Everything, you get full access to every single video, more than 3,000 videos for one price per month. Download them to your iOS or Android device, watch them on the go, you name it, you got it. Linda, L-Y-N-D-A. And if you go to lynda.com slash back to work, all spelled out, lynda.com slash back to work, of course, you'll support this show. You will also get a free 10-day trial. So go check it out. Linda, L-Y-N-D-A, lynda.com slash back to work. Thanks very much to them for supporting this show. Now you're starting to make me think a, a little bit more about some of my prepared topics. Hmm. What you talked about with, with Merlin on the la- latest episode of Roderick on the line. Mm-hmm. And I have to pull up the number because I'm going to put it into the, into the show notes to make sure I get it right so people can go and refer it to it. Episode 163, mm-hmm. in which you talk about you talk about being a generalist versus somebody with like deep, deep knowledge in something. Yeah. And this is something that I think applies to you for sure, to me, to Merlin, to a lot of people that I meet. And I, I feel like younger people, people in high school or college now, or just out of college, there's almost this attitude where it, it's, it seems rare to find somebody who is kind of like just one thing. You know, like my grandfather was a metallurgist. Was he really? Yeah. And he worked, he worked for the government. World War II was like designing anti-ballistic. You and him would have got along great. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Anti-ballistic stuff for tanks, like armor for tanks. And, you know, like his whole life he was a metallurgist. That didn't mean that he didn't have other interests or pursuits, but like his job every day of his life going to work, metallurgy, tungsten, right. you know, tungsten, tungsten. I knew what tungsten was when I was very young because of him and among other things, but because he was a scientist, his whole approach to the world was using a scientific method in a lot of ways, you know, like the view that he had on the world was that things could be understood. Right. And he taught me that at a very young age, that, that you can find the answer by consulting things like books, or you can determine the answer by testing the world, the scientific method, you know, testing things and coming up with a theory and proving it or disproving it and trying again. And so even though he had, a very, very specific, deep knowledge in the case, metallurgy. He had that kind of approach to, to other things in the world. But now it seems like people almost, they don't want to be pigeonholed into something. They don't want to be an expert. Now, the, young, the younger people, if you will, the people who are kind of in that half our age category. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's almost like, that's somehow bad. Whereas for me, my career, my whole life, being a generalist, that always hurt me. That always made it hard for me to find a job until I kind of got into that. I'm in the startup world now where all of a sudden it was good 
to know how to run a Linux system and also be able to write code and also be able to sell something to someone. And it wouldn't hurt if you could write pretty good and maybe draw a little bit. And, you know, like all of this stuff finally started to, to fit together for me in that kind of a job. But it seems like in as much as you were saying on that show, like that, like I think you were talking about like a Lieutenant Colonel coming in and, and like kind of being held in higher esteem because they, they had this rank and this title that that might not actually be the most effective person for that job and, or, or for that role or for whatever it is. And you talked about the other thing of, of speaking confidently, right? Like where you're, the way that you in particular, and, and my wife has always said this to me for years and years and years until I like completely rebooted myself. She's, she used to say to me, like, when you say something, it, it, it sounds like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and you say it with such conviction and so definitively. And then you actually don't know what the hell you're talking about at all. And so, like, I had to work hard for a, a lot of years to not do that. And it, 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 because it became like a problem. Like, I would say something, oh, uh, you don't have to worry about that. That's not going to be like that. Or this is what's going to happen. When in fact, I didn't really know. I was just saying, and like, you know, for whatever, whatever confidence I had in it was almost like I was trying on the idea, right? And you've talked about mm-hmm. that too, like trying on the idea of feeling confident about this thing because maybe I want it to go that way or because I don't want it to go that way or whatever. And learning, kind of having to unlearn that. And I don't really know where that came from. But you really have that going. I'm not saying not believing it, but I'm saying like when you say something, I, you have this voice of authority for, in, in, in a way and at the same time, it doesn't come across as forceful, which makes it even more believable. Mm-hmm. It just sounds like you know. I had to look up the 30 years word to make sure you weren't making it up because <laughs> but it's a real thing. It is a real thing. I put it in the show notes. But like you could totally have had me go. You could talk to me about the 30 years war and maybe there wasn't even a 30 years war. Not that I thought right. that you were going to do that because I just inherently believe you. Well, John said there was a 30-year war. It must be a 30-year war. What is that? Like, that's a weird, that's a thing. Yeah, and you want to use that power for good and right. not for <laughs> yeah, evil. I hope you do, yeah. Um, and yeah, ultimately, like, to say things with conviction as a form of experimentation or, you know, as a conversational gambit, um, and not, not to start an argument, but to, you know, to put the idea, to put the idea out there with as much, like, with as much sort of care yeah. as you can, and then see if it stands up. You know, uh, I think, Part of it is a, a the the alternative to that is the is the tendency that we have now, and, and I call this Bellingham after Bellingham, Washington, where it's really pervasive. Yeah, 
But the like over apologetic presentation of ideas where you diminish the idea in advance because you don't want to be emphatic. You don't want anyone to live under the tyranny of your thinking. And so you say, um, you know, hey, sorry, uh, but maybe this, maybe that. Um, probably not, though. Anyway, doesn't matter. I don't, I don't matter. I'm just saying. And that presentation, which tries to make the world safer for people by, by not having any particular emphasis on things or by even privileging one idea as better than another mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is a, is a contemporary methodology. And for me, like if you have an idea, if you want to see it, if you want to explore it, if you want to feel like it, uh, if you want to see if it has merit, stand it up, run it up the flagpole and see who salutes as the, is as the right, old saying right, goes. Right. But like really stand the idea up and say, here it is. Like, this is what, um, this is what I'm thinking. And so here's that, that presentation. And if it doesn't stand up, then you know. And you go, oh, right. Uh, the counter argument is better. Or, um, or now that it's standing there and we're all looking at it, we can all see that it's no good. And, and partly that requires that you stand up ideas and then also be able to stand them down. Or stand, stand up ideas and then be able to say like, ha ha, <laughs> Oops. Right. That, that was dumb. Um, and that's a sort of a separate skill, but a necessary. But you mentioned and other I, skill. I, I've, again, on, on the, the, uh, the other show, you've mentioned this, but I think it's such a, a really, really cool thing that of, uh, but I don't think in, people get this or not everyone really gets it. The idea, the concept of trying that, a trying something on. And it's not as sort of, Transparent is saying, I'm a lawyer today to like see if you want to go to law school. I'm a lawyer. What does a lawyer do in the morning? Well, I eat <laughs> cereal and then I drink green tea. You know, like, no, it's not like that, but it's almost like, like, how do you do it? Like, walk me through an example, if you could call one up of that process of trying something on. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you, if you, if you spend, if you, if you like ideas, Right. And you recognize, and Merlin does this all the time. You know, it's, it's part of empathy. It's part of uh, his process of trying to put himself in other people's thinking. Right. And Merlin tries to inhabit someone else's thought process so that he can better understand where they're coming from. Right. Um, and if you do that long enough, you realize that sort of every idea has a place from which it is very valid. There's, you know, there's no one out there not even the person that you most disagree with who is just generating ideas to piss you off. Right. Right. Everyone is generating ideas out of their own fountain and they're, and they all have validity within their context. And so you play around with ideas and you, you, you listen to other people and you try and figure out where they're coming from. And then you start to see ideas as these floating organisms where your, where your first goal is to figure out where they're coming from. What is the world in which this idea is valid? And then you compare and contrast it with the other worlds that you know. Right. Starting with the worlds you know well, and then extending out to the worlds that you don't know well. 
and you keep testing the idea and say like, well, okay, does this like, okay, this idea, right? It was generated within uh, like a tennis club mentality. So we know that within a tennis club worldview, this idea works. Now, does it work with it? You know, as you leave the tennis club and you're living and you're walking around an upper middle class neighborhood, does this idea keep holding water? Seems to hold water pretty well here. All right, let's go down to, uh, you know, to the south end of town where people are working uh, like at, um, at work at what we would have called working class jobs. Does this idea still hold water? And in a lot of cases, as soon as you even make that move, you go two miles away. Right, yeah. And it just, the, the, the idea no longer works because it was so rooted in the context of its, but, but if you never leave the tennis club, you would never see that that idea didn't, didn't work elsewhere. Right. And that's the problem most people have. And carrying those ideas around and, and holding them up like color swatches to all the different, um, all the different versions of, of eggshell white there are and say, is this eggshell white the same as that eggshell white? My God, it's not. There's a little bit more blue in that one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that little sort of comparison is really fun, but you can't do it unless you first know the idea and are interested enough in it to say like, here it is. I, I like, I'm going to live in this idea for a minute uh, because the ones that don't, you know, the ones that don't work like the Confederate flag one, right? It's very easy to, to be inside the head of someone who's like, it ain't about racism. It's about history. Yeah. Because that idea has, you know, that idea was very persuasive 40 years ago and very persuasive to us, to an increasingly small group of people. Uh, it remains very persuasive. But as you, as you get more information, you hear from more people, you realize like, oh, wait a minute. No, that doesn't, that idea doesn't stand up. It's not. And if it, and in 1960, the only reason it, it resonated with people was it was, you know, it's one of the elaborate American codes that allow us to talk about, allow us to express ideas that we can't say, but we can you know, we can put an emblem on them and we can talk about it. We can talk about it at one remove, right? But it's not hard for any of us now to say like, okay, I see what you're saying about the Confederate flag. I see what you mean about the history and whatever, but no, like that doesn't work in most of the rest of the world. Yeah. And so we just have to like, we have consensus enough now on that. But, other ideas are 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 much much trickier and they're and no less passionately held by people but much harder to see like what the what the world where their generative world is and 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 where the where the line starts to fuzz so i just i mean that stuff is is super interesting to me and it's not and 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 partly it's because i don't take ideas personally i guess how do you mean by that there are so many of them and i've had so many of them and i've considered so many people's ideas and taken them to bed with me 
and rolled around with them and said, like, are you my idea now? Do I like you that much? <laughs> right. And then in the morning, kind of like set a saucer full of milk for it out on the porch and said, well, if you're here in the afternoon, maybe you can keep living with me. I think people are scared. They're kind of scared of that. Maybe when I say people, I mean, I I remember a time for myself when I was kind of scared about that because it's like, if you think something or if you think about it enough, well, what if that becomes the way that you think or that becomes the, and like you won't be able to fight against it or you'll lose the original concept of thinking that way. And like, it's, it's bad to, you know, a lot of religions have that philosophy that don't even think, don't even think like that. Don't nice. talk about, don't think about like that. Do you remember when we were younger people, uh, the, uh, the Hare Krishnas who yeah, would yeah. be in airports? Sure. So when I was 17, 18, 19, I spent a lot of time talking to Hare Krishnas in airports. <laughs> um, and I can, I can visualize it. Yeah, yeah, it was, and and there was a time, because I was, you know, I was young, uh, where I, you know, I asked myself, like, hey, be careful here. You've right. been talking to a lot of Hare Krishnas, and what happens if they get their ideas into your ideas? Mm-hmm. What happens if their peanut butter mixes with your chocolate? Are you going to become a uh, Hare Krishna. Like, be careful. Right. Like, if you, 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 there might be a line you'll cross. And once you've crossed that line, like, you're there now. And all of a sudden, like, you're in the airport too. Yeah, that's right. That shit starts to make sense to you. And then <laughs> right. all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, you know, um, <laughs> do you have a second to talk about Hare Krishna? Right. And then I spent a lot of time on college campuses talking to people hang, handing out chick tracks, uh, wanting to talk to me about um, about Jesus. And a lot of those people were my age, and they were really, really emphatic and really excited, and they were really full of full of joy about it and wanted to talk to me about it. They really wanted to share it with me. And I wanted to talk to them. I wanted to hear what was making them so excited. Yeah. And I had that same thing where I, you know, I was sitting around like, what is, you know, what would it be like? And again, it was just a thought experiment. Like, what would it be like if I felt that way? Well, how would it feel if I believed something that um, intimately? And, you know, and I felt that same kind of fear, like, uh-oh, what, you know, like that's, I, that, I don't want to be, I don't want to look like that person looks to me, um, which is that, which is dogmatic. You know, I always want to be free. And so, you know, what do I do? And, and so over the course of, of 25 years of trying ideas on, you know, like the first time you hear of eugenics, you're like, and this happens to a lot of guys, people that are 20 years old and hear you about eugenics for the first time. And they're like, well, wait a minute. Does that make, does that make sense? You know? And then you follow the logic and you're like, no, we can't really, I I can't really get behind eugenics. Um, Interesting word, interesting school of thought, you know, and and ultimately libertarianism, right? Uh, So you have to try all that stuff on 
and and push the push it push on it and so all by way of saying like i've done that my whole life and so now i don't i i don't take ideas especially personally i don't feel like like the what ones a, that what I a have nice are, position that puts you in, right? Where you're there in this in this situation that you can actually hear what someone else is saying, and you don't have that cloying sense of having to reject it, having to say, no, 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 because it's crossed some line, and like, well, now I I don't I can't think that way, or I can't allow myself to do that, and there that is such a such a thing of like you almost feel. Like you could be harmed by the person's idea or by listening to them discuss it and not stopping them or not yeah. con- showing them how wrong they are about it. Yeah, right. I, I, I guess, you know what I mean? I guess there, I, I am not living according to a system. And so there's no idea that threatens my system because I don't, because I don't have a system. Right. You know, I have a constellation of ideas that have worked and held up over time and Every once in a while, I, I go back and revisit one and I'm like, oh, wow, you have been with me a long time and you don't work anymore. And I, you know, I pop it out of the, of the, um, the, you know, my DNA replicator just, just pops it and replaces it with something else, some other sequence. Um, but I'm never, you know, I never take the whole, um, spiral and hold it up against a model and say like am i still within the boundaries of being a secular humanist or am i still oh, within right. the boundaries of being a uh, a liberal democrat or a methodist or whatever you know and i think that's what i think that's what causes the most harm to people is that they're that they have a template and they allow new ideas in but if it strays too far from the template, they're much more invested in remaining a Methodist than they are mm-hmm. in, in really exploring the ideas that make up Methodism and whether or not it all works for them anymore. And I, that's true of, you know, that's true of so many. You see so many people, like, when they make this epic switch of political parties, like, I am no longer a Republican because I cannot abide. The idea that the Republicans are against gay marriage. And right. so I hereby leave the Republican Party. And, you know, and that sort of, that type of thing would never happen to me because, you know, yeah, I'm a liberal Democrat, but but believe me, um, barely. <laughs> or, you know, like <laughs> as many things, as many of the things that, as many of the ideas that define me are not, within the liberal Democrat canon as that are. But, you know, it's a good shorthand. It, 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 it clears the room of, of all the Ted Nugent fans. <laughs> well, and I used to be a Ted Nugent fan. That's yeah, the other thing, yeah, right? Yeah. I, uh, that was an idea that uh, ultimately, like, my little, my selector bot came along one day. I was like, you know, as good as um, a couple of those records were, <laughs> they're not good enough. Not good enough to keep this one around. This fish is starting to smell. <laughs>